Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Brothers and sisters, please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're only going to be looking at one verse here this morning. It's verse 18. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. If you would, please uh, stand as we honor the public reading of the Word of God. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Let's go before the Lord once again in prayer. Oh, Father, as we come to this particular text and even looking at a very small portion of the Scriptures, yet we come to concepts that uh, dominate uh, our lives as Christians, which things which are absolutely foundational to everything that we believe and which affect every single thing that we do to the praise and honor of your name. Lord, how we do pray that you would open up our eyes here to see the wonder of the reality of Christ's death and of his resurrection, that we would be so built up and encouraged that we would be able to live lives that are pleasing to you, especially as we suffer. We do ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, Paul says that he decided to know nothing among the Corinthians. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It was a statement about the absolute centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ and even more particularly of his death for the Christian faith. That when we speak of being Christians, we, are, we believe in a faith that is rooted and grounded in the reality that Jesus Christ has died for the sake of sinners. And one of the things that Paul points out in the previous chapter in 1 Corinthians is that this appears to be great foolishness to the world. It appears to be great weakness that you would have uh, your leader die, be put to death. It, and how could it be that this would be the way in which people are saved? But Paul goes on to say that it is, in fact, the wisdom of God. And that what appears to be foolishness is actually wiser than all the wisdom of men. And even though it appears to be great weakness, it is actually the means by which Satan himself was defeated. That enemy that was far too strong for us. And even then, even more ironically, we could say that death itself was defeated by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can see then that with with regard to the Christian faith, that the death of Christ is absolutely foundational to everything that we believe. If there is no atonement made for sin, then we are above all else most to be pitied. And though we can say that the death of Christ is foundational for us in so many different areas, here we see that that even in uh, Peter's argument in the first in his first epistle, that it is also foundational for the idea of our suffering. That even if we are going to suffer well, the death of Christ is just as foundational. So whether we're talking about the wisdom of God, the power of God, the atoning nature of sin, all of those things, atoning for sin, all those things, uh, we, we recognize that the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is foundational for all of them and no less for our suffering. How is it that you are to know, as we spoke in verse 17 last week, 
that it is better to suffer for doing right than for doing evil. How are you, how, how are you to know that there is actually a blessing if you endure suffering well? It is because of the atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ and because of his being raised to life. There is a guaranteed victory for you if you are found to be those who are doing good rather than doing evil and suffering for it. And that victory is, is caught up in and is founded on the, the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so because this is so foundational, we're just going to look at just this one verse this week. This verse, which is a, a great succinct summary that covers so many different aspects of the significance of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll look at this passage under three headings, this one verse under three headings. First, we're going to consider the nature of Christ's suffering. What, it, what was actually going on when he suffered and died? Then we're going to look at the, the purpose of Christ's suffering. What was, he, what was he trying to accomplish by his suffering and death? And then thirdly, we're going to look at the way in which his suffering relates to the resurrection. So we have the nature of his suffering, the purpose of his suffering, why he did it, and then also the way in which his suffering relates to the resurrection. So notice, as we look at verse 18, particularly the first part of verse 18, when we speak of the nature of Christ's suffering, there are a number of things that Peter goes out of his way to, to speak of in describing the suffering of Christ. And these, these tell us a number of things in terms of what actually was going on when Christ suffered and, and the way in which Christ's suffering is, in fact, different than our suffering and the way in which it is unique. Notice there are a few things that are said. One, for, for one, that Christ suffered once for sins. And this, this word that translated once could be translated once for all. There was a single unique suffering and that it was, in fact, for sin and that it was, as he goes on to say, the just for the unjust or the righteous for the unrighteous. It was a substitutionary atonement, a substitutionary death. Now, all those things describe what was going on when Christ suffered. So we're going to just take all of those terms uh, just one after the other. Notice here once or once for all. This clearly points to the unique nature of Christ's death, that it was absolutely not repeatable. And it had no need to be repeated because it was perfect. Uh, now, if we were to ask, you know, what, why is it important that it be uh, that it be not repeated? Uh, one of the things that shows is that death, that Christ's death, fully paid the penalty for sins. If if they did, if it, if Christ's death did not fully pay the penalty for sins, then there would be a need for other deaths to take place to to atone for other sins. And this is exactly what we see in the Old Testament with the, the institution of the various sacrifices. They needed to be done repeatedly. It's one of the things that uh, the author of Hebrews points out in Hebrews chapter 10. It was, a, it was a reminder of the need for atonement. But it did not fully take away sins. It could not have because it had to be done over and over again. Even the highest of all the sacrifices where atonement was made for all the people of God and the high priest was able to go into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. Even there, it had, to, it had to happen every year without fail. So when was it then that the, that the sins of the people of God were atoned for? Well, they, they were never atoned for. As the author to the Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sins. It was all pointing to another act of suffering, another event that would happen where there would be a final atonement made for sins. It would be a once-for-all atonement that would fully, because of its efficacy, it would fully pay for all of the sins of God's people, such that there would be no need for any other suffering 
for atonement ever again. And this is what Christ did. He suffered once for all. Now notice as well that that he suffered for sin. The reason why he suffered was for the sake of sins. And this is simply to, to say then that it was a sacrifice of atonement, that it was a death that was meant to atone for sin, that Christ came to pay the penalty for sin. Now, when we say that he died for sin, we have to understand what is meant here. There is some sense in which we all die for sin. Uh, we all have sins that are our own. And the reason why we do die is because we are born in Adam and we're under sin. Uh, we're born in sin and therefore we all must die for that sin. But this is something that is actually very quite different with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not dying for sin in that sense because he himself had no sins to pay for. He had none because he is perfectly righteous. He was not dying for the sake of his own sins, but he was dying for the sake of paying the penalty for the sins of others. Thus here you have a, it's a, a legal description of Christ's sins, and it really can't be anything else. We, we die for our own sins, but Christ doesn't, and therefore in what way did he, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, in what way could he possibly have become sin for us in his sufferings? It's only that he had our sins taken upon himself, and then in our legal place, then, he stood and paid the penalty for all of our sins. There's really no other way to, to uh, describe what's going on. He himself did not sin, and yet he died for the sake of sin. Which leads to then the, the next and obvious question, which is whose sin? Whose sin did he pay for? Notice the text says, it, emphasizing the substitutionary nature of Christ's death, he died the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, as I said, this cannot be speaking of his own sins. Uh, because he himself, by this very verse, is in fact righteous. He's just. And the author to the Hebrews says the same thing in chapter 4. He was made like us in every way except without sins. Now, this makes a very unique situation. If Christ is absolutely without sins, then actually for him to die, and if it were not for the sake of other people's sins, that would actually be an injustice on God's part. God cannot put to death the righteous. Now, there are, there are some ways in which we can say that, you know, the righteous suffer in this life. You've got people like Job who are, uh, you know, God says, look at this man, Job. He's, he's righteous. No one in, in the world is like him, and yet he suffers. But even someone like Job is still born in sin, such that even though he's suffering righteously, it is not an injustice for Job to suffer. Job, Job still had uh, sins that had to be paid for one way or another. And so the fact that he had to succumb to the mortal end of all people, this was something that was in fact just. But it is different for the Lord Jesus Christ. The wages of sin is death, and yet he had no sins to pay for. He had no sins to pay for. Thus, if Jesus was not dying for the sins of others, then we could actually charge God with injustice. God cannot punish the righteous along with the wicked. Far be it from God to do that. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And so then, if the Lord Jesus Christ is perfectly righteous, and yet he comes to die for sins, we, we immediately recognize that he did come to die for the unjust. He came to die for the sake of others. And this is really taught all throughout the Old Testament. Again, one of the things that the sacrificial system points to, that there is uh, the, the animals brought forward, and it is the individual worshiper who benefits from the death of that animal. 
there there are that the hands are laid on uh, are, are are laid on the animal, and particularly with the Day of Atonement, when, when sins are uh, are atoned for for the whole people, the hands are laid upon the animals, and all of the sins of the people are confessed upon the animals. They're transferred to the animal, and then the animal itself is put to death. There is all throughout the sacrificial system this, this recognition that in order for sins to be atoned for, there must be one to suffer in the place of the sinner, in the place of the sinner. There is, there is someone that must take our place. Christ himself in this way then is our perfect substitute. He takes our place before God such that now all of our sins are paid for in him. Now, to dig just a little bit deeper into this question of whose sin, it is for sinners. But is it every single person or is it only for the people of God? Who, who is it that Christ, when he died to make atonement for sin, did he die to make atonement for the sins of every single person in this world? Or did he die to make atonement for the sins of his people? One of the things we see, if we just look back to the Old Testament, the sacrifices, and even uh, to the Passover, which we just read, which clearly points to the sacrifice and death of the Lord Jesus Christ, is that all of the sacrifices were only ever for the people of God. They were only ever for the Israelites. And not only that, they were only for true Israelites. If you were not truly faithful to God, the sacrifices would not help you at all. If you were living in unrepentant sin and you apostatized from God, then then the sacrifices, the Old Testament makes very clear, had absolutely no benefit for you. Think of the the blood of the lamb, which is put on the doorposts. It did not help a single Egyptian. It didn't help a single Egyptian. It was only for the people of God. It was the thing which distinguished the people of God from those who are not the people of God. And we see really the same thing in the New Testament. We have in Matthew 1 that Christ Christ came to save his people from their sins. In Matthew chapter 20 and in chapter 26, that he came to save the many, not all, but the many. In John chapter 10, he came to lay his life down for the sheep, that is the sheep and not the goats. In Ephesians chapter 5, he came to lay down his life for his bride, the church, not for every single person in the world, but for his people all over the world, which make up his body, which is the church. All throughout the Bible, we see a very consistent picture that it is only the people of God who are faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, who in fact benefit from the atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why is it that this is important? Why, why, why should I take so much time to try to argue for the reality that Christ died uh, not just not for the entire world, but only for his people. Well, the reason is, is if we do not say that Jesus Christ died only for his people, then really his death is not a true substitution. And this is one of the things that's emphasized in this passage. Christ died in the place of sinners. He died as their substitute. Now, if Christ dies as the substitute for every single person in this world, then that means that every single person in this world must be saved. If Christ, by his death, actually paid the price for every single person for sins, then there's nothing left to pay. On the last day, then, a sinner who never turns to God, who remains persistent in his unbelief, can say, well, God, even though I did sin, even though I never believed in you, my sins are fully paid for by the blood of your son. Is the blood of your son not worth 
my acquittal if his blood actually covers me? And then he could continue to rail at God as he is led into heaven because the blood of Christ actually pays for his sins. Now, many people will try to get around this by denying the substitutionary nature of Christ's death. That, that's, that's the way that people get around this. How can it be? How can it be that Christ dies for every single person and yet some people go to hell? They deny that Christ actually suffered in the law place of a sinner, that it was just general. And that's the thing that we want to maintain, that Christ did in fact die as a substitute. And if he died as a substitute, then because God and because God cannot punish a sinner twice for a crime, there can be no double jeopardy in this sense with God. If they're paid, if the sins are paid, they're paid. Because that's true then, the substitution of the Lord Jesus Christ must be for a limited number of people because every single person, every single person who is covered by the blood of the Lamb will be saved. So while uh, others who try to say that Christ died for every single person in this world, they want to maintain God's love for the entire world because of the importance of man, we would rather emphasize the greatness and efficacy of Christ's death that there is not a single person that the Lord Jesus Christ attempts to save and fails to save because he died a substitutionary death that fully pays the penalty for every single sin such that if anyone receives this saving blood through faith, they will all be saved. This is really the great beauty of the gospel that Christ, the sinless one, comes to die on behalf of, of sinners, that he took the full weight and penalty of the law that was due to you for sin, all of the curse, and he paid it fully. So now that any single person who is found to be in Christ on the last day, he will be saved by virtue of the saving death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're here and you're listening to this and you are holding on to your own righteousness and you think, you know, I'm, I'm okay, I, I have not done that many bad things in my life. I know on the last day, you know, I'm not sure what God will say, but I believe that I am a good person. If this is you, then Christ's death can have no benefit for you. It has no benefit for you. If you are like the Egyptian who does not think that he needs the blood of the lamb to be put on his doorpost, you yourself will be cut down on the last day just as every single Egyptian was. And really, you do this to your own peril. One of the things that we find with Christ's death is that Christ's death is actually a testimony to God's, uh, to the universal nature of sin and to God's absolute commitment to punishing every single sin. Christ's death is a testimony that sin has in fact infected every single person in this world and that he must, that God must punish every single sin. We see this from his death in that it, it, it being universal, in that Christ himself actually did have to die. If there was any other way to save man, if there was a possibility that you could find a righteous man, then there would be no need for Christ himself to die. Any other solution could have been, could have been done in order to save man. The, the, the solution to the salvation of man that was chosen was the absolute most costly situation possible. And so if it, there was a case, you know, a man can, can be reformed through this or that way and he can meet the, the, the demands for the justice of God, if any other righteous person in the world could have been sent for the sake of the atonement of others, then that would have been done because it was far less costly 
than sending the eternal Son of God. Now, if it was in fact the case that God had to send the eternal Son of God to become man just so that he could die to save sinners, then it must be the case then that every single person is in fact sinful. And they're so sinful that there is no possible other solution. But also, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is a testimony to God's absolute commitment to punish all sins. Think of it. When when the, the Son of God, the Son of the love of the Father, had the sins of the world put upon him, even there, even there, God had to punish his Son. He had to punish the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if there was ever a time when God would be pleased to overlook sin so as not to punish it, it would be when his own son bore the weight of that sin. But God testifies to his commitment to punish every single sin in that when the sins of the world were placed upon his son, he still, he still executed the judgment against him. And so if you yourself then are found to be with sin on the last day, you, you have absolutely no hope of thinking that you will be found in a better position than the Son of God himself, who himself was punished when he had sins placed upon him. And so there's, there is the testimony of the death of Christ is a testimony there, that there is, in fact, only one way of salvation, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Christ came to die in the place of his people. Every single person who belongs to Christ will be saved. If you do not belong to Christ, turn to him that you may be saved. There is no other possible way of salvation. Your own mortality is a testimony to the sinfulness of your heart. And it is a mortality that you have no hope of evading except by turning to Christ in repentance and faith. By casting all of your hopes upon him and turning to him and trusting in him. And then not, it will not be the case that you have no way of avoiding the judgment of God. But in fact, it will be that there will be nobody who will be able to take your hope away from you. Because you will receive forgiveness of sins and you will be counted righteous in God's sight. This, this is the effect of the atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was done once for all. It was done for sin. And it was done in the place of sinners as a substitutionary death. Now, this is the nature then of, of Christ's death. Notice as well that Peter gives us the purpose of Christ's death. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. Here's the great purpose statement for why the Son of God came, became a man to suffer and die for the sake of his people. It is to bring you to God, that you might be restored to fellowship with God. And there's really nothing that can thwart this purpose. As, as the Lord Jesus Christ says in John chapter 10, there's no one that can take you from the hands of God. As Paul says in Romans 8, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, neither height nor depth, neither angels nor demons, neither death nor hell, neither anything else in all creation. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And this is the great purpose for why Christ died, that he himself might bring you to God. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the thing that happened was they were exiled away from the presence of God. And because of that sin, then man would always be separated from God. There was always to be this exile. 
They were always separated from his fellowship. They could have no fruition of God's blessing, except, except that there was a promise that someone would come to defeat Satan himself, that he would crush the head of the serpent and bring God's people back into fellowship with God. And this is exactly what Peter says is the great purpose of the death of Christ. This is a, a, a renewing of the fellowship that was lost in the garden, that you could be brought back into perfect fellowship with God, a fellowship which, if you are in Christ, has even now already begun, that you already have as a result of the Holy Spirit indwelling you. You have a wonderful fellowship with God, and it's a fellowship that will continue to grow all throughout your life and persist into all eternity, as one day you will wake up from the slumber of death when the Lord Jesus Christ returns with all of his angels, and you will be with God forever. Christ has died to bring you back to God. He has died to give you access to God so that you can have fellowship with him to all eternity. Now, why is this, why is this important that Peter would speak about this in a context of suffering? Now, remember, the, the whole point of this, this uh, letter and even uh, the passage we looked at last week, which is in some ways the in some ways a, a central passage for the entire letter, dealing with suffering, notice Peter has immediately gone now to this description of the suffering and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The the reason is because it is this great benefit that is really the blessing that shows that it is better to suffer for doing right than for doing evil. If Christ if Christ has brought you to God, and this is yours if you suffer with him, then surely, surely it is much, much better for you to suffer for doing well than for doing evil. If picking up your cross means following Christ to his death, but then in this death you also get to have this great fruition of access to God forever, then surely it is worth it. And if this is the Christ whom you sanctify, remember what we looked at last week, you are to sanctify Christ in your hearts when you suffer and always be ready to give a reason for the, the hope that is in you. When you sanctify Christ in your hearts, you, you recognize that it is this Christ that you sanctify in your hearts. It's the Christ who died to bring you to God. It's, it's this one that you do. And the hope that is in you is this very hope that you now have access to God himself. And so we don't, we, we don't minimize suffering when we speak of it. We don't minimize the great pains that people go through. But we do also recognize that the blessing of being with God forever far outweighs anything that might come our way in this life. And it is, and it is our, our focus, our, our perception of Christ's death as foundational for all of these blessings that is the thing that can enable us to live in the midst of suffering well, to actually sanctify Christ as we suffer and to go through it without any complaining, but even to bless God in the midst of it, to rejoice when we suffer, knowing that in the end it will produce godly character and end, in fact, in our great blessing. And so this is the purpose for, for Christ's suffering, that we would be brought to God. Now notice as well that Peter does not just speak of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he also speaks of the resurrection of Christ. And he does this by juxtaposing the two. He says at the end of verse 18 that the Lord Jesus Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive 
by the Spirit. So not only that, that he died in the flesh, but also that he himself was raised to life. Now, this is, this is important. If you, without the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we're above all else other men most to be pitied. It is not sufficient for Christ in this way only to die and then never to be raised from the dead. The two really go together. They can't be separated. There is no such thing as a truly atoning death without the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Calvin one time uh, beautifully wrote, it would be uh, quite strange if for us to have hope that we would be able to defeat death if our leader himself, when he was put to death, could not defeat death himself. Now, the, the great the great testimony, the victory that we have, that we will in fact be with God forever, is the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and is now with God forever. And even as he was raised from the dead, so too we will be raised from the dead. The victory that is the foundation for all of our hope of blessedness in the midst of our suffering is the fact that Jesus Christ is already experiencing that by his resurrection from the dead in the spirit. Now notice as we look just a bit more at the details of this verse, notice that there's a juxtaposition, as I said. On the one hand, Jesus is put to death in the flesh, and on the other hand, he's made alive in the spirit. The idea of Christ being put to death in the flesh is he was put to death in uh, as a true man. It was not a, a, uh, a, the appearance of the, a death, but it was an actual death. And it was not only that, but it was even a death in a flesh which was like ours. It was, uh, he was put to death in the likeness of sinful flesh, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. He had, he bore in himself all the weaknesses of our kind of flesh as he went to the cross and died. But yet, even though he died in the flesh in that way, he was made alive by the Spirit. That is to say, the Holy Spirit. The, the, he was put to death in the flesh with all of our weaknesses, but then in the Holy Spirit, he was in fact raised to life. Now, this doesn't mean, so some have taken verses like this to mean that uh, the resurrection of Christ was not bodily, uh, because there's this destructive position that he was, he was put to death in the flesh, but then his resurrection was in the Spirit, so it wasn't in the body. But again, um, the, the idea of flesh is not the body, so to speak. It's our sinful flesh. And the spirit here does not in any way negate the reality of the bodily resurrection. This is made perfectly clear in 1 Corinthians 15, where the same kinds of terms are used, but Paul goes out of his way to emphasize over and over again that, it, that the Lord Jesus Christ was in fact raised in the body. However, in his resurrection, he is not raised in the likeness of sinful flesh anymore. He is raised as in an exalted body, which is in no way susceptible to any of the weaknesses that were related to sin. It was a body without weakness. It was sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And this is the, the great significance of this, of this fact that he was, that the Lord Jesus Christ was put to death in the flesh, but raised to life in the spirit is that this is, as I, as I said, this is his great victory. This was the, the testimony of the Father of the righteousness of his Son. This was the great evidence of the effectiveness of his death, that the sins were so fully paid for that now there was nothing else for him to suffer. 
and it would have been then unjust for God to leave him in the grave, him being a righteous person. This was the vindication and demonstration that this one whom the, who everyone had, had put to death, Pilate had uh, said that they could put to death, the Jews wanted to be put to death, that this one was in fact the eternal son of God. This, this resurrection is victory over death. And as death then could not hold the Lord Jesus Christ, so too it will not be able to hold you. If you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, then his death becomes yours, but also his life by the Spirit becomes yours as well. You will live. You will live because the Spirit of the one who raised Christ from the dead lives in you and will also give life to your mortal bodies. And so if you were to ask the question then, why is it that we should sanctify Christ? Why is it that when we suffer, we should have this perspective that it is better to suffer for doing right than for doing wrong? Because the, it's because the Christ whom you sanctify is the one who has won all of these victories for you. What, what is it, brothers and sisters, that man can do to you? If this is the victory that is yours, what can man possibly do to you? They've, they tried to do everything to the Lord Jesus Christ, and what did it result in? His resurrection and glorification, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and is seated with him now forever to, to reign as the King of Kings. What can man do to you? They can try to do anything they want to, but if you are in Christ, you will have the same resurrection, glorification, as the Lord Jesus Christ himself experienced. You will experience all of those blessings. And so we see then how right Peter is to immediately go to the cross, do an explanation of the cross as he finishes an exhortation to the people of God to suffer well in this life. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is foundational to how we can suffer well in this life. If, if the Lord Jesus Christ has asked us to pick up our crosses and follow him, as he has asked us, every single Christian to do that, we must pick up our crosses and follow him. We know that we can do this cheerfully because if we die with him, we will live with him. If we suffer with him, we will inherit the whole world with him. We will reign with him forever. We will be perfectly blessed because it is, in fact, better to suffer for doing right than for doing evil. Let's pray. Father, how would you plead with you that you would open up our eyes to behold the, the beauty of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in all the ways in which he suffered to make full atonement for sins. Help us to see the beauty of this, to, to see our own helplessness without the Lord Jesus Christ, and to see the great glory of the way in which you did make a full atonement for sins in his blood. And that we, though we were dead sinners, could yet be made partakers of this by your grace and by your grace alone. Help us, O Lord. So often when we suffer, there is such a temptation for us to take our eyes off of Christ and to descend to our own sufferings and to focus on them too much. Help us, O Lord, to lift our eyes to you, that when we suffer, we would yet be able to sanctify Christ in our hearts and always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in that is in us to anyone who would ask us. We do ask these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit us at newcovopcssf.com. That's N-E-W-C-O-V-O-P-C-S-S-F dot com. If you'd like to worship with us on Sunday, our service times are 10.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m.